Welcome to the other side of midnight. Uh, Richard's still in kind of bad shape tonight. So I'm your host again. My name's Keith Morgan, Discover the Morgan Curve on Mars. And our guest tonight is James Goodall. And I know we've postponed this thing, I don't know how many times, but James and I are in good shape and He's doing better because they were both out there in the wildfires, Richard and him, uh, and with the smoke. And that's why we had to postpone the last one because both of them were hoarse. So he's doing good. He's got a lot to tell us. And um, um, I'm looking forward to this. And you guys are going to hear some stuff that you probably never heard before, especially from Jim. Uh, so... Uh, Jim, I'm going to bring you on and I want you to introduce yourself and because I'm not going to read your bio because it's long as all get out of heck. Okay. So, all right, Jim, okay. uh, you're on. So tell us your background, Jim. Okay, thank you. And uh, I want to you know, thank the audience for having patience. You know, if it, it seems like there was there was a conspiracy to keep uh, Richard and I from, you know, from uh, being on the air. But today's the day or tonight's the night. My background, I am a retired Air Force Master Sergeant, but my background started when I was, well, about five years old. We were living in San Jose, and we were living not that far from San Jose Municipal Airport, and my, my dad came into the bed, bedroom, and I had gone to bed, but it was still light out. And he said, I don't know what's coming, but you got to see it. So we went outside and we're looking towards the coast mountains and all you could hear is just a vibration. It was going, ah, and it was, it was almost, it was spooky. And over the coast mountains came not one, not two, but 24 Convair B-36s. And those of, the, those of you out there that are not old enough to know what a B-36 is at the time in the, of the early 1950s, it was, the, I think it still is, the, the largest strategic bomber ever built. It had a 260-foot wingspan. It had six 28-cylinder uh, Wasp Major engines and four jets. And it could fly for 50 hours unrefueled. And to see 24 of those coming over the, coming over at, uh, the Coast Mountains, at probably under 5,000 feet because they were on their way to Travis, is something you don't, you don't forget. And that's where my love affair for machines in general and airplanes specifically began. So fast forward, uh, mid-1950s, I'm, I'm 77 today. So this, I was born in 45. So I have a buddy of mine, his dad is the base commander at Moffett Field Naval Air Station. And we're referred to as Captain Smith's son and that friend of his. And of course, I was that friend of his. And I was over there all the time. We had the run of the base. Everybody knew who we were. And one afternoon, we were, uh, I, I'd come over there to, you know, just to hang around and be around airplanes. And he said, hey, there's something really, really cool in, in the big hangar, which is Hangar 1. It's 1,100 feet long, 400 feet wide, 400 feet tall. And at the far north end of it was an area that was cordoned off. Now, Danny and I had the run of Moff the Field. We, we didn't go on the taxiways. We didn't go on the runways. But we were pretty much everywhere else on that base. And we, be, we were, at, we were that, there so often we came in, became invisible. But Danny says, there is something so cool that you got to see it. So we went to the north end, and there's curtains, big sign that says, keep out. 
No sign that says use of deadly force authorized. Of course, you're not going to shoot a 10-year-old. So we went behind the curtains, and there, still, it was still classified secret at the time, but there was the prototype XF-104 Starfighter. And this is, I mean, for a kid who, who absolutely is passionate about airplanes, this, this was it. This was the beginning of my obsession with the skunk works. And we're walking around it. Of course, they had those seven-foot wings, they had the real sharp leading edge, and uh, it was just—it was just very, very cool. And Danny said, "Well, get in the cockpit." So I, I was a little bit hesitant, but hey, I'm ten. I got to sit in the world's coolest jet. So we opened the canopy. I get in. I close the canopy. Danny latches it, and I'm in there for about two minutes. And I started getting a little bit claustrophobic and a little bit nervous. Because I know I'm sitting on an ejection seat. I wasn't aware at the time that they take those things out when they put them in wind tunnels. So I wasn't, uh, there was no fear of me you know, being ejected out of the airplane, but I didn't know that. So I went to unlatch the canopy and the latch mechanism jammed. Danny couldn't open it from the outside because he wasn't strong enough and I was incapable. I was afraid to touch anything. So we had to, he had to go get shore patrol and the Marine guards and some maintenance guys to come into this classified area and take this 10-year-old out of the cockpit of the XF-104. So that was the beginning of my passion of all things Skunk Works. And consequently, I ended up joining the Air Force. And I ended up at Lowry Air Force Base in Denver. Now we're fast-forwarded to February of 1964. I have a special day where I'm a communication specialist, uh, specializes in ground-based telemetry and such. And I get set of orders to go to Edwards Air Force Base in California to support three programs for category one testing. And they listed two of them. One was the YC-141 Starlifter, a Lockheed uh, airplane. The other was the North American XB-70 Valkyrie and a classified program. I arrived there, you know, say the last week of February. Saturday morning, I believe it was the 29th of February, it was a leap year. Something set off the deluge system and the fire alarms on the flight line. And I had a flight line badge, but we were, the barracks were eight miles from the flight line and someone had already taken the truck that morning. So I had a, I had a wait. I knew something cool had come in. I didn't know what it was. And what it was, two blackbirds came in from Area 51. They came straight in, and they had the engines running, but they had turned uh, for the rear end of the aircraft to be pushed into the hangar, but the engines were still running. And the heat from four j 58 set off the deluge system in the hangar and about drowned the Lockheed reps that are in there. So uh, I didn't hear anything. I didn't see anything uh, the rest of the weekend. You heard stuff during the week. And I had, I had worked an awful lot of overtime, so I had, a, uh, I had a, uh, four days off. And it was a Tuesday. It was March 10th, 1964. It's about 3.15 in the afternoon. We're waiting for the shuttle plane to go from Edwards into Hawthorne, where, North, where Northrop had their headquarters. They're on Prairie Avenue. And I hear this roar uh, down the flight line. I see debris and stuff being blown across Rogers Dry Lake. And I run down the taxiway and I look towards what was the new tower, which is now the old tower at Edwards. 
And I, at first I thought it was the X-15 rocket, the North American X-15 rocket plane, but people were too small. About that time they said, hey, we're loading. So I had to run back up, got in the airplane and it was a Piaggio, an Italian airplane. It was a go-wing pusher type, but it was just uh, two rows of seats. Uh, everybody had an aisle, everybody had a window seat. And we took off and headed over Rogers Dry Lake and banked over the XB-70 engine run-up test pad. And I looked down and I'm looking straight down on the top of a Lockheed YF-12 Blackbird, the interceptor version of the uh, A-12 and the SR-71. And it, uh, when I came back the end of the week, walked in the Edwards, uh, into our shop, shop in Ed, at Edwards Monday morning, came me a set of orders, and it is to uh, the Lockheed hangar. And with that, I, I took my, I walked into the back of the Lockheed hangar, and I'm looking at the back of two Blackbirds. I have never been the same since. It has affected everything, everything about me. And... That was the beginning of my obsession, or my ex-wives call it my patent. You know, um, it was a millstone. It was a passion that has never, you know, that has never waned in, in sixty or seventy years. So I have a, a love affair with airplanes. I have a love affair with Lockheed and the Skunk Works, and you know, down you know, down the road a ways, I uh, I also became friends with a lot of. Uh, of interesting people, all of them having a uh, an interest, a similar interest in mine. And one of those people was, was who we're going to talk about tonight is a, uh, he was, the best way to describe this guy, he was a one of a kind. He was a Buck Rogers. He was, there isn't anybody like this person. And most of you have heard of Learjet and what a Learjet is. And it was the first private uh, business jet and it was brought to the world by William Lear of uh, of course of Learjet fan and his one of his one of his offsprings was John Lear and in 1973 time frame I had the on the honor to meet John Lear and he is the most he's he's probably why I'm where I'm at today John still holds 15 world FAI world records for going around the <clears throat> flying around the world in his dad's Learjet on his 16th birthday. And that has never, that, uh, that will probably never be broken just because of the tensions we have in the world and where you can't fly, uh, where you could way back then. Hey, James, can I give you a, a little bit of a break so you can sure. catch your breath? I want to tell a story about, a Learjet and ABC. Sure. We had to paint the nightline set in Washington and a director had ABC charter a Learjet to fly two cans of paint down. <laughs> and you know how much that had to cost to, to yeah, charter yep. a Learjet. Well, that's kind of weird stuff that went on at ABC. So I want you to continue. Have you caught your breath now? Yep. Yeah. Doing great. Go ahead. Okay. Okay. So uh, <clears throat> I met John Lear through a, a another dear friend of mine named John Andrews, and John Andrews was the plastic kit manager, development manager for Tester Models. 
But because of my friendship with uh, John Lear, uh, it has brought me to places that I never thought I'd go. Um, John Lear is <clears throat> who I was with the first time I photographed an F-117. John Lear was the first guy I was with when we actually drove into Area 51 in 1989. John Lear is the guy I was with who introduced me to a, a young man who works in a place called S4. And the list goes on and on. But the way I uh, saw my first F-117, the, the world had announced the existence of it. The Air Force announced the existence of the F-117 in November of 88. Uh, the, and during that same month, they also announced the existence of the B-2 stealth bomber. So here are two stealth aircraft, one made by Lockheed Skunk Works, one made by Northrop. And I wasn't having an opportunity, uh, I didn't know at the time, uh, a couple of weeks later to see, to see one in person. So fast forward to early January of 1989. It's been about 45 days since they announced <clears throat> the existence of the F-117. John and I are driving up US-95 out of Las Vegas. We're just north of Scotty's Junction. Scotty's Junction is, is infamous for having, there's a house of ill repute there that the government took over. And I don't know how they did it, but they ran it out of business. And we're about, uh, now we're about 15 miles north of Scotty's Junction and an F-117 stealth fighter at flying at about 1,500 feet above the road, dry, flies right across, right in front of us, and I almost crashed the car. And I couldn't believe what I was seeing. I mean, it, I had seen a real p bad picture of it, but this was this was live and in person. So we got to town of Tonopah, we grabbed a quick bite. Uh, we, uh, we hit US-6 and went out uh, east about 14 miles. There's a huge sign that says Tonopah Test Range. So we drove down that road 18 miles and you come to the main gate at TTR and you can't, I, I didn't have access to the base, but we just drove along the fence line, which is public lands. And you're looking down on the whole facility, about 60 hangars, all sorts of activity there. And this is before digital cameras. So I have a, uh, I, I have a Nikon, I'm shooting print film. I'm shooting Kodakolor 100. I have a real, I have some really good uh, telephoto lenses, and we're waiting for something to happen. You know, we're there about a half an hour, and I look to the north, and I see a, a big black dot with a light underneath it, maybe 18, 20 miles away, and a little white dot with a white underneath light underneath it, right next to it. I thought to myself, well, that's got to be an F-117 and a photo chase. And sure as shooting, here it comes. I'm and I have my, uh, you know, my camera up. It's all the, you know, I have it set for infinity. I'm uh, I zoomed in, and as as the viewfinder is filling up with F-117, I was like a ten-year-old kid seeing a naked woman for the first time. My whole whole body was vibrating. I didn't know how to stop it. I mean, I mean, I'm trying my best to just hold my breath and take some take the shots. I went through all 16, all 36 exposures and uh, told John, said, well, let's, let's get back to Vegas. We got to, I got to get to a photo mat to get the film processed. And again, you have to have white hair to know what a photo mat is. And they're now, they, today they're, they've been taken over by coffee baristas. 
But you used to be able to drop your film off there and pick it up the next day and process and print it. So we had, uh, we're heading, headed uh, east. We hit the extraterrestrial highway that goes, th- goes through the, the beautiful downtown Rachel, Nevada. We had a quick bite at the little alien. And John said, and again, I'm with John Lear. John said that uh, by the time we get back to uh, Vegas, it, you know, the photomats will probably be closed. Said, so, but I got a, I got a new, I got a new friend coming over. He just moved here from Albuquerque. I think he'll enjoy him. So we get back to his house, and it's a little bit after 9 p.m. And we're in his study, and I hear, I hear the, uh, uh, I hear that he uh, knock on the front door. John goes, answers it. He brings it, you know, he brings this young man in, nice looking guy, very cordial. And, and he said, I, I introduced myself as Jim Goodall, and he said. Uh, my name is Bob Lazar. I just moved here. I'm interviewing for a job out in the desert. Don't know what I'm going to be doing, but it could be fun. He said, I'm a nuclear physicist. I was with Sandia and just moved here from Albuquerque. I said, that's great. So I, then I told him what my dilemma was. I had this print film of the first guy to photograph the 117. And he said, well, he said, I have a, I have a C41 processing unit at home. Let's go to my place. I live off of West Charleston. So we jumped in his car. We're, we're about a block from Lear's house. And he stops and he looks at me and he says, you know, I feel sorry for Lear. I said, what do you mean? He said, that dumb SOB believes in UFOs. I mean, how stupid is that? I mean, his, his family you know, brought Learjet to the world and he believes in flying saucers. He said, Dan, says, I'm a nuclear physicist. If I can't prove it mathematically, or put my hands on it, it doesn't exist. Said so you can't, you know, say, and you can't put a gun to my head. I, you know, there's no way I'm gonna, you'll ever convince me that UFO is real. So we got, you now we got to uh, to Lazar's place. We got the film processed, and I had about a half a dozen out of 36 were st- still very, very crisp and sharp. So I had the first photos of the 117 that uh, went out to about 10 or 15 different. Uh, uh, publications, including Aviation Week. So that was my, that was my introduction to, to Robert Lazar. And he's, uh, and I met him because I'm a friend of John Lear's. And John Lear is someone that he's a one-off. He flew for Continental Air Service for 14 years. Continental Air Service is a subsidiary of Air America. He is uh, I think he was typerated in 58 different uh, aircraft. He was also a certified A&P. He was a certified flight instructor, both in jets, in, in uh, multi-engine uh, prop aircraft, and in helicopters. There wasn't anything you know, related to aviation that John didn't do. And that friendship started uh, almost 50 years ago. And he's, it was, those of us, those of us are old enough who went to Disneyland back when they first opened up, it was like a golden e-ticket. It was the most, probably the most exciting, interesting people I've that ever come in, into my life is because of John Lear. Mm-hmm. And he passed away here on the, uh, uh, I think it was the 29th of March. He was, he's been in ill health for a number of years. He's been in, you know, he, 
when he was still a teenager, he, you know, he crashed, he crashed two airplanes and he, and he shattered, literally shattered his feet. So his, his last 15, 20 years uh, on the planet, uh, he was confined to a wheelchair, but you know, or not wheelchair, but a electric cart or a, a walker. And that was just a sad thing to see. But we had his memorial service in Las Vegas on the 24th of April. It was attended by, you know, about 100 people. Some of the wildest different types of people you can ever see all gathered in one spot. And like his daughter said, you know, he kept a lot of those people away from each other. And the only time we ever ever came all together was at his uh, memorial service. So John was John was just a very very special person and a and a one of a kind. And some of the stuff he pulled, and we'll we'll get into it in you know, a little bit down the road a ways. But he's pulled some stuff that you wouldn't believe. And <laughs> one of the funniest things I don't know if you can use profanity here, and if if I, if it if you do, you can you can beat me. But this is 1996. The F-117s have moved out of Tonopah test range. It's supposedly in caretaker status. And we'd heard, we'd heard differently that uh, there was stuff going in there. And I had heard that they had put a third perimeter around the flight line. So John Lair are at the fence line. It's middle of June, 11 o'clock at night. And we're sitting on our lawn chairs. We have, we have generation one night vision goggles on you know they work just fine for what we were doing and to the south on the south side of the fence now we're in we're on the public land side and the south side of the fence is a restricted area and there's three armored personnel carriers one coming up from the south one from the west one from the east and they're heading towards us their lights are off and i stand up and yell real loud hey we're good guys we're taxpayers and all of a sudden we had floodlights on us. John had three little red dots on his chest. I had three little red dots on my chest. And then I see this other pickup truck coming down the public land side and parked behind John's pickup. And he comes, you know, a guy, gentleman comes around. He's in desert utilities. He has his hand on his nine millimeter Beretta. And he says, you're in a restricted area and I order you to leave. And I said, sir, I don't know who you are, but this is public lands and I don't have to go anywhere. I said, I am ordering you to leave. I'm Captain so-and-so with ASI. And that stood for Advanced Security Inc. I said, oh, you're a rent -a cop You don't have jurisdiction on this side of the fence. And this guy's getting pissed. And he said, look, says I've been deputized by Nye, Lincoln, and Esmeralda County to uphold the laws of the state of Nevada and the federal government. You're in a restricted area and I'm ordering you to leave. So I pulled out this handy dandy map oh, made by the federal government that shows restricted areas. I said, sir, if you look at the if you look at the, the base of the fence post where my buddy has his feet up on the barbed wire, there's a USGS medallion that gives the longitude and latitude to the second. And we're in public lands. And I can be here for 15 consecutive days without asking anybody's permission. And he's getting more pissed as we go on. He's, and he says, I want to see some ID. I said, I don't have to show you squat. And he's getting more upset. And I said, well, I tell you what, you show me yours, I'll show you mine. So he hands me his ASI badge. And I said, sir, this is not a valid form of ID. I need something issued by the state or federal government. 
and he's getting more pissed. So he hands me his Nevada driver's license. I don't have my my reading glasses on, so I said, fine. So at the time, I called Minnesota home. I gave him my Minnesota license. Lear pulls out his you know, driver's license. He lives in Las Vegas, and he hands it to a guy on the south side of the fence who takes it over to the supervisor. And we, I, can, I can see him. Uh, we still have the floodlights on us, but uh, I, can, yeah, I can see the guy wandering over to the uh, to that particular uh, armored personnel carrier. He hands it to the supervisor and he turns the interior lights on. And this this is what exactly what I heard. Oh, shit, it's good all in Lear. Lights went off. The red dots went away <laughs> and everybody dispersed. And they knew. But we knew that nothing was going to happen that night because. It was good all in Lear at the fence line. So that's just one of many, many uh, stories I, I've done with the John Lear. And and I'm going to miss it, something terrible. He, he just he just put a there was something about him. He had a he had a, a bizarre sense of humor. He you know you could think he is he is so bent out of shape at you. He just you know he he he's just assumed pull a gun out and shoot you and get, put you out of your misery. And he's cussing me up and down and whatever. And all of a sudden you see this twinkle in his eye. I said, Larry, you sob. And then he let it, he had the best laugh. He let out, let out this belly laugh, and just just he would just almost wet his pants. He was laughing so hard. So that is, you know, that is, uh, you know, the part, you know, just a smidgen of what John Lear represented to me in my life. And I'm a, and I I wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for him. I wouldn't have met John. Uh, I, I wouldn't have met uh, Bob Lazar if it wasn't for him. I wouldn't have uh, been one of the first persons to go up to the top of White Sides overlooking Area 51 if it wasn't for John Lear. I wouldn't have met George Knapp from KLIS um, if it wasn't for John Lear. And I wouldn't have gone to Desert Blast and seen some of the crazy stuff that he and Lazar did out in the desert. I mean, my gosh, they, one of the crazy things they did, they had, they had a thing for 13 years until Bob decided it was getting too popular and he quit it. But we used to make commercial grade fireworks in his garage. I'm sure if it, I'm sure if his neighbors knew that there were 500 to 1,000 pounds of black powder in a, in a behind a false wall in his garage, they would not have been happy. But uh, they go out and they they blow up things. They fire machines. They go out to a, to a dry lake bed, and because it became so popular, he wouldn't tell anybody when or where until about 24 hours before the event. And he'd get up to 1,500 people out there. But one of the crazy things he did, they went to uh, Enterprise Rent-A-Car, rented a car, put out, took out all the insurance you could take on it to make sure if it got damaged, it would be fully covered. And then they proceeded to put it out in the middle of the lake bed. They had Thompson sub submachine gun, 50 caliber you know, machine gun, and they just blew the snot out of this rent-a-car. I mean, literally, they were using armor piercing weapons, so it was going through. It was going through the uh, the engine block. The thing was just totally destroyed. And when they brought it back to Enterprise, they had it on a flatbed, and they brought it in, and they unloaded it. And the guy comes out, well, "What the hell happened to my car?" And 
And John says, I don't know. I said, we were at a, we were at a function in a not so good neighborhood. And when we came out, this is what it looked like. But it is fully covered insurance wise, right? And he said, yeah, but what did you do to my car? And unfortunately, I don't think there are any photographs exist of it. So, uh, okay. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to interrupt you right there. This okay. is good. This is good stuff. Hey, um, I want you, we're going to, we're going to take a break. It's going to be about, uh, approximately three minutes long. Okay. I want you, I want you to go get some water, wet your whistle, uh, cause I don't want you getting hoarse in the middle of the show. And, uh, when we come back, uh, we can pick up where you left off and I can ask some more questions. I, I'm going to ask some questions because I haven't listened to anything. I've been, you know, mesmerized by all the stuff you've been telling us. So um, go get your water and okay. uh, I'll be back. We'll be back in about uh, three minutes and you'll you'll be refreshed, I hope. And right. uh, you guys are listening to The Other Side of Midnight. Our guest tonight is uh, James Goodall. And I'm your host, uh, instead of Richard, uh, Keith Morgan. And we'll be back after this break. If you're into hyperdimensional, one thing you'll find is essential is our club. 19.5. It's a hyperdimensional storage case, a treasure trove of outer space, our club, 19.5. All the data we've accumulated, the find here, titled and collated, why don't you just drop on? social media and before any of this whereas now you can't do that there's no such thing so like you're saying about black and white and what it does is it stops people expressing themselves people are too frightened it's like you know i want to say something but if, what if i use the wrong term but i remember a story a couple of years ago where benedict cumberbatch who at the time was a darling in the media's eyes was complaining about the disparity between the treatment of um, black actors and of white actors and, and he was sticking up and saying you know they're not getting paid as well they're not getting the jobs that they should be getting and they're being there is no equality 
But what he said was, there isn't equality for coloured actors. Well, you've said coloured there, Benedict. You can't do that. And so they went for him and he was vilified and he had to come out and do a big apology. Now what it was, it was, it was a slip of the tongue. He's obviously not racist. He's actively trying to say that there is discrimination and he's trying to stick up for that community. But he was vilified and attacked. And that's what happens now. And so when people make their mistakes now, they make their mistakes on the internet. They make their mistakes on social media where they're screenshotted forever. And so I think that's all part of the conditioning that people are frightened. You know, if you're in a position where I don't know what to say, I don't know what to say, in the end, you'll go, well, I won't say anything then. The fallout of this is going to be extraordinary with that because people don't realize, you know, when you, 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 you're phoning up the police and grassing on your neighbors and when all this ends, they're still going to be your neighbors and you're still going to have to live next door to them. And good luck with that. Hello, everyone. My name's Gareth Ike. It's been a pleasure to talk on the other side of the news. Fantastic conversation with Kinthea, Timothy and Aneta. And I wish you all the best with a fantastic podcast. And welcome back to the other side of midnight. And we've been having a great conversation. Well, actually, I'm I'm letting James tell you his history. Because I've got as much stuff probably in my head as he's got in our lifetimes that we've been doing the things that we've been doing. And we need to make sure this stuff gets documented. And that's what we're doing with this historical record that we're making right now. And you guys are listening to it live. And um, we, we need guys like this who've experienced and know the ropes, been there, done that to pass it on to the next generation so they don't have to start from scratch and listen to the uh, disinformation to try to focus them in the wrong directions. Because most people will never get to hear the kind of stories that uh, James is telling us at this point in time. Because it's, it's things that they don't want us to know, they didn't want us to know, and now that they're finally coming forward and saying, well, there's these UAPs, UFOs, that it's time for us to, to go ahead and go forward. And we can't move into the next generation of major technologies until these people actually get up off of the fact that they've known about all of this stuff for the longest time. So with that... Uh, Running that down to you. Hopefully, James is back from yeah, uh, wedding I, I his mean, whistle. Okay, yeah, I, I'm back. I don't know about my voice, but uh, it gets this way in the evening anyway. And if people knew me from 40 years ago, they say, "Well, your voice is totally different than it was way back when." I had uh, I had a breathing tube down my throat going through brain surgery for 11 hours here. Uh, the day challenger blew up and. My voice has been a little bit gravelly ever since, but I'm alive, so I'm I'm happy with that part. But but we're going back to uh, uh, talking about John Lear and some of the crazy stuff that's going on in the desert, and just to sort of uh, uh, to give you an idea of, of where I'm coming from in today's world is I'm a published author among other things. I'm working on my. Uh, 
my 29th book is at the printer. My 28th book is still being worked on and I have to, I'm just waiting for the Navy. But I have, uh, because of my friendship with John Lear and the people that were introduced to me by John Lear, I have, uh, I've had a, 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 the time of my life. One, you know, one of the, the uh, people that I met, not maybe directly because of John, but, uh, but part and parcel because of John Lear, is I became friends with uh, Mr. Ben Rich. Ben Rich replaced Kelly Johnson as the head of the Lockheed Skunk Works, the most advanced aeronautical design group on the planet. And we spoke, uh, we spoke pretty consistently once a quarter for about 25 years. If I didn't call him, he called me. If I called him and he was in a meeting, June would still put him through, that was his secretary. He would always answer my calls. He'd put me on speakerphone and we'd sit there and talk about things that go bump in the night for half hour, 45 minutes, sometimes even approaching an hour. This is the president of the Lockheed Skunk Works, a real important guy. And he took time out of his day to talk to me. I'm, I'm not anybody special. I, I happen to love what this comes out of the Skunk Works. And you know, because of that, I have it opened a door that I never thought would open. I didn't even know the door was there to be opened. But one of the things that because of John Lear and because of my friendship with, with the people in his circle, Ben called me in August of 89. And he said, Jim said, the Blackbirds, and those, those, I hope everybody knows what an SR-71 Blackbird is. It's the world's only operational 2100 mile an hour spy plane. It's now, it's been retired for 30 years, which I find amazing. Uh, and, John, uh, James? Yes. Uh, uh, let me direct people to the, uh, the show page and your items. If you go to the other side of midnight.com, and you click on tonight's banner and you go and you get to the show page then you can go down a little bit to the fast links and click on james and it will take you to james items and then you'll get to see what a blackbird looks like uh keith yeah yeah uh, that's also it's the plane that the x-files or x-files the x-men fly x-files. for comic book and movie fans Okay. Yeah. At least that's you know supposedly what it is. So that's where if somebody can't get to the web page, that's you've seen it in in the X Men movies. It's slightly modified. Or a representation of it. Yeah. Well, right. yeah, yeah. There's the Shiara technology that gives it the ability to go into space, but that's not relevant here. Yeah. No, that's all. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so Ben, you know, Ben calls me and he's and he said, Jim says, I have it from the horse's mouth. I don't know if that was Tip O'Neill or who it was back at the, you know, back in uh, 89. I think he was gone by then, but it's not, that's not important. He said, if anybody I know can scrounge a blackbird, it'd be you. So I said, okay, I'm going to start working on it. And the first thing I did the next day is I, was, I went over to the guard base and I uh, got on there. Your military, this is before cell phones and you didn't want to pay for a long distance call. You'd go on Autobahn or DSN, as they called it. 
Then I called the adjutant general for the state of New York National Guard. They wrote the air in the Army Guard. And uh, called the secretary, answered the phone, and said, General Weaver's uh, office. I said, this is Sergeant Goodall with the 133rd. Is General Weaver available? Just a second, Sarge, I'll put you through. Now, you can do this in the Air Guard. You, do, you don't do it in the regular, you know, regular military. You know, you're violating the chain of command. But the Air Guard, you don't have one. So General Weaver gets on and said, Sarge, how can I help you? And I said, sir, I got a proposition for you. He said, well, what's that? It said, how would the New York Air Guard like to move the world's fastest airplane in a couple of your C-5s? Quite, you know, he was dead quiet for a few seconds. He said, do you mean the Blackbird? I said, yes, sir. He said, when you're ready, you call Will Hall. So fast forward a little bit, Arnie Gunderson, who was Mr. J-58, that was, the, that was the engine used in the Blackbird. They were trying to get a Blackbird for West Palm Beach. And he'd inquired into the Air Force what it would cost to lease a, a C-5 and they said $967,000 a day plus gas. And I scrounged two, you know, two C5s for eight days each. So uh, Sergeant Bilko doesn't have anything on me. But so you know, this, this went forward. I went to my boss, you know, General Broman, General Schwab. He was a two-star. So I want to get a Blackbird for our museum. And they both laughed at me. I said, generals, rather than, you know, rather than laugh at me, why don't you give me the opportunity to fail? I said, right, Smarty, how are you going to get it here? I said, I got that covered. And that's what I told them about uh, the New York Air Guard. And, and they just scratched their heads. And they just, good, good. All I don't, I don't, I don't know, want to know how you did it, but uh, we'll, we'll help push the paperwork through. So I got the uh, the authorization from the Air Force Museum in September of, uh, actually August of uh, 90, that they were turning over the eighth production CIA version of the Blackbird. The, uh, and the designation is A, like an article 12. So I, had, I got the eighth production A12 was assigned to us. So we went to Palmdale on the uh, 10th of October of 91, a question of 90. And this was, uh, we took the airplane apart in, in two and a half days. I had three E9 chief master sergeants, three E8 senior master sergeants, a gaggle of master sergeants, E7s, and a couple of us tech sergeants. And we took that airplane apart in two and a half days. We had to leave, we came back uh, two weeks later, and we had arranged for the C-5s. And we loaded the C-5 up, flew from Palmdale to Travis for gas, spent the night there. And we only had about an inch and a half of clearance when we rolled this, the Blackbird into the, into the C-5. So the, on the 27th of October, we're heading back to uh, Minneapolis. We, we leave Travis, we're out about you know, 45 minutes and the uh, the chief is going down to check the load. And I asked if I can go with him. And he said, sure, come on down. So I went down and I decided I was going to do something no one else has done. I climbed up on the landing gear. We had the wings cut off, but it's on its gear. I walked along the shines. I had the canopy blocked open with wheel chalk. I had a five gallon bucket in on the ejection seat. 
with a cushion on top. And it was, all, you know, the seat was all the way down. I get in the cockpit, I close the canopy, and I'm in there for about 45 minutes. And I'm just going zoom, zoom, just, you know, I mean, I'm a kid. I'm, I'm, I'm 10 years old. Instead of being locked in the cockpit of the XF-104, I'm in the cockpit of the world's fastest operational spy plane, the Blackbird. And I got a wrap on the bottom of the fuselage that, hey, we got to go back up. So we head back upstairs in the C-5. And now we're coming in our final. We're about 35, 40 minutes out of Minneapolis. And the chief comes back to me and he said, the boss said, you can be in the cockpit when we land. Well, I'm already the forward of the wing box, so I'm in the cockpit area. And he said, no, no, downstairs. So I went back downstairs, got into the cockpit, and uh, the airplane landed, and we unloaded. And I called Ben the next day, and I said, Ben, I think I have a, a Blackbird record that no one on the planet could can achieve. Not now, not later, not ever. I'm the only one. He said, what's that? He said, I'm the only person in the world to have been in the cockpit of a Blackbird at 33,000 feet at Mach 0.72 inside another airplane. And I landed that same airplane inside another airplane. And Ben just started laughing. He said, I'm almost tempted to issue a Mach 3 card, actually Mach 3 minus card for you, because no one will be able to top that. So it's, that's my that's my primary claim to fame when it comes to airplanes. I'm not a pilot, uh, but I have been in the cockpit of some of the most incredible airplanes in the world, the Blackbird being one of them, including the B-2 and the F-117 and uh, MiG-29C, uh, which is the nuclear-capable uh, uh, MiG-29. And it's just been, uh, it's just been a kick. But one of the things that, like I said, I, I talked to Ben about once a quarter for 25 years, and it's now, it's, uh, it's, it's the late 90s, or mid, mid to late 90s. Ben Rich is in the hospital. He's, he's uh, dying of esophageal cancer. He was uh, around all the nasty chemicals used with making uh, low observable airplanes. And we were, you know, we were talking and, uh, we're talking about our friend John Lear and my, you know, our mutual friend, the late John Andrews. And we when we talk, started talking about a bunch of stuff, and he's and then Ben says, Jim, we have things out in the desert that's fifty years beyond what you can comprehend. Not what you think in building fifty years, but what you can comprehend, and I can comprehend a heck of a lot. And if you've seen movies like Star Trek or Star Wars. We've been there, done that, or decided it wasn't worth the effort. And prior to that, in 1993 at, at UCLA, it was a graduate, aeronautical graduate students, and Ben was the keynote speaker. He said basically the same thing. He said, we have the ability to take ET home. Now think about that for a second. This is the mid-90s. This is if anybody in the world knows what's happening in the in the spooky world, in the black, black world of, of secret programs, it would have been Ben Rich. And Ben says, we have the ability to take E.T. home, but our government will not allow us to release that information. And it's just one of the most frustrating things in the world. I mean, we have that technology. 
and to sort of support uh, UFOs or, or other worlds and stuff like that. I was a I was a docent at Kitt Peak National Observatories outside of Tucson for a couple of years, and they have the largest concentration of optical telescopes in the world is at Kitt Peak. They have 22 optical telescopes. Every running from a 12 inch primary mirror to a 13 foot primary mirror on the Mayall uh, four meter telescope. And they have two uh, radio telescopes, a 12 meter and a 25 meter. One of the one of the other uh, telescopes on the on the mountain was the 2.1 meter, which is about an eight foot uh, primary mirror. And it was run and controlled by Caltech for five years. And over their five over this period of five years, their job was to look at a very small postage stamp size part of our Milky Way, not the universe, but just our Milky Way, looking for exoplanets. And over the course of the, the five years, using adaptive optics and remote remote operation, they were able to catalog and name and identify 8,000 exoplanets. And just think about that. I mean, that's just, there's a lot, there's a, for, for a world that didn't think that we were the, that, that thought we were the only ones, it turns out we're not. So just before I, I left being a volunteer, we had a gathering of all of the astronomers all of the technicians and all of the docents uh, down at the uh, University of Arizona, their main campus, which is also the headquarters for the National Optical Astronomy Observatories, NOAOA. And we had one of the top uh, astronomers, the National Science Foundation was, our, was the speaker. It was beer and pizza and an information type of uh, gathering. And he, after he went through some of the other stuff that, were, you know, that we had been talking about, he got to the part that was interesting. He said he had just returned from a worldwide gathering of everyone that's that's searching for exoplanets, all the astronomers, all the uh, telescopes that are out there used, you know, being used to look for exoplanets. And said, based on the proven mathematical formulas, that have, you know, that have uh, proven to be correct over you know over the years. He said we calculate for every star in the universe, and that's an incredible number. You can't even put the decimal points, you know, in your head. There's just too many of them, not counting the numbers. But for every star in the universe, there's one and a half planets, and for every out of that incredible number of planets. They figure that there are in the neighborhood of two billion, that's with a B, two billion Earth-like planets orbiting a similar size brown dwarf star as our sun in the inhabitable zone with liquid water. And to quote Jodie Foster's character in Carl Sagan's movie, Contact, if we're the only ones, what a waste of space. So you couple couple that with the fact that uh, Bob Lazar's, you know, said he was working on revol reverse engineering of, of, of propulsion systems for alien spacecraft. 
you take the you know the conversation I had with Ben Rich just before he died. You take the uh, the piece that uh, you know he spoke about at uh, UCLA in ninety. I think it was ninety three. It was shortly after he retired from the Skunk Works. That leads me to believe that we're not alone. And there's a lot of stuff out there that 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 can't be explained. And it's just, I mean, that's why when I go outside, I look, I look up at the sky all the time. And I, I have never, I have never felt that we were alone. And Jay, <laughs> yes, uh, I, I had encounters of the third kind and I know we're not alone. Uh, when I first had my first encounter, I just thought it was a dream. And then when I had the second one, Nope, they left evidence on me that proved that, hey, they were there. And I knew something was going on. Um, my first sighting of a craft making a 90-degree turn at full speed and then cutting back at a 45-degree angle and then back at another 45 and still climbing, I, I knew that nothing could make a turn like that at full speed and the retention of vision showed the angles that it was making while I'm looking at it. And that's what caught my eye. That kind of technology does exist. We just aren't privy to it. There's two. Correct. Correct. There's I two mean, civilizations. There's the one where we're flying into space on a flame. And there's the other one that's using the electromagnetic spectrum of the universe to get from point A to point B. No flame. Well, I mean, to add a little bit to that, I have a, he passed away here last year or year before last due to COVID. He was a retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel. He flew SR-71s and his name was Dave Fruhoff and he was a friend of mine. He, you know, he called uh, Lynchburg, Tennessee, the home of Jack Daniels is his home. And my dad lived in Tullahoma. So every time I visit my dad, I go visit Dave. But I was interviewing him because uh, he had he was a student pilot when he actually had a bailout of a Blackbird. You know, they had a total electrical failure. So we, 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 we I went there to talk about that. And I asked him, I said, hey, Dave, he said, do you believe in UFOs? And he said, his eyes got really big. He said, absolutely, positively, they do exist. I said, I figured he was just pooping me away. And when I asked him, you want to expand upon that? And he said, sure. And I just, yeah, I was, I was really taken back. He said he was flying a night training mission out of Kadena, Okinawa in uh, late 72, early 73. It's still the Vietnam War is still hot and heavy. He's flying a night training mission. He's at 78,000 feet in altitude. He's doing Mach 2.7, which is about 1,800 miles an hour, 1,700 miles an hour. He's going straight and level. There's a three-quarter moon off to his left. And he gets a glint off of something reflective five or six miles off to his right and five or 6,000 feet above him. So he contacts Kadena on Secure Voice to see if another SR-71 is up there. And they said, no, you're up there by yourself. And he said, no, I'm not. I'm going to go take a look. So he pushes the throttle forward, never takes his eyes off the object. And there's about a 10-degree bank. And he starts climbing and started getting and started heading towards this object when he was still a couple thousand feet below it and still a mile or so away 
He's, he can't get the shape because there's too much reflection inside the cockpit, and he didn't want to open his visor. This thing took off at about a 30-degree angle of attack and left him in the dust. He said he lost sight of it going, going through between 180 and 200,000 feet, and it left him at going at least Mach 12. So fast forward to 1979, 1980, he retires from the Air Force. He has a real high clearance. He applies for and gets a job as facility manager at Area 51. So he got there. He knew you don't go asking questions if you're the newbie. You don't ask questions anyway, but you don't ask questions in a, cl in a classified work environment. So he was, there about, he was there about a year before he actually got enough courage to ask some of the guys at the club, said, hey, did we ever flight test something here that can outrun a Blackbird? And everybody said, not here. Doesn't mean it wasn't done somewhere else, but it wasn't flown out of here. So what did it, what did Dave Fruhoff chase if it wasn't if it wasn't developed by Lockheed if it wasn't built at the Skunk Works or the the Phantom Works for McDonnell Douglas and Boeing or the uh, Black Widow home there at uh, at Northrop Northrop Grumman the stuff is out there it's just that the fact that us peons don't have the clearance don't have the wherewithal to know to know where our tax money is being spent. And that's what I do. I'm a, I'm a pain in the butt to the military. I've had uh, little red dots in my chest <laughs> and I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of them. I'm, did, I'm did Benrich ever say uh, something about there was a flaw in the math and they figured it out? And no, no. Cause we, uh, cause when I asked him to expand upon what he would, what he had just told me, he said, very typical Ben Rich. No, I can't help you with that. And uh, and they, he had the nerve to die on me about 10 days later. And that really broke my heart because he had agreed to give me a no holes barred interview taped with this with a a analog clock behind him with the sweep second hand. So you can know if it was uh, edited or not. And he said, I had to get this book done with Leo Janos first. That's uh, his, his book on the on the skunk works. So I never did have a chance to to do a one on one. Ask him any question that he would answer interview. So, yeah, well, we're coming up on a break. Um, we're about a minute out because uh, yeah, I, I heard the story about the you know, Ben Rich saying something about the there was a flaw in the math, but they figured it out. And I met this Russian guy on a plane uh, to flight to Dallas. Uh, actually, it was a connecting flight. We had to stop at uh, Nashville, Tennessee. And he he recognized the Morgan curve on my shirt, but he didn't see the picture on the back. And he says, oh, the Morgan curve. And I said, this old guy's got pretty good eyesight. And he said, oh. <laughs> And then he says, yeah, that's on Mars in the Sidonia region. And I said, excuse me, I want to sit next to him. <laughs> and he was Russian, He, but he didn't have a Russian accent. He said, yeah, you probably wonder why uh, I'm talking with a southern drawl. He said, yeah, I picked that up from the rednecks I was working with out there at Papoose <laughs> And he's telling me about how they grew a ceramic lens for the the uh, surveillance camera on the SR-71, and I'm going, grow a ceramic lens. 
He said that was the easy part. Getting it to stop from growing was the hard part. Okay, James, I'm going to be back. We're going to be back in a minute. We're going okay. into break time. And uh, I would, uh, if anybody's got any uh, ideas of, uh, uh, or any questions, I think I'm going to have open lines in the last hour. All right, we'll be back in a minute. for listening to this exciting first hour now the second and third hour of the show is available to club 19.5 members only please support the show by subscribing to club 19.5 and join our very interesting community to do that please visit the website the other side of midnight.com and click on the join club 19.5 link in the left hand column as a club 19.5 member you'll gain access to the rest of this show and all previous 350-plus shows that we have done. Now, recent Club 19.5 member archive recording have the commercials removed, and the sound quality has been enhanced. You'll also receive a dedicated private podcast feed that contains these enhanced show recordings. And you'll be able to download the MP3 files directly from the archive if you prefer. As a Club 19.5 member, you'll also be the first to preview our new videos and reports. We'll be adding exclusive new features to Club 19.5 as we go forward. And boy, have we got some amazing things to tell you about in the coming weeks. So please support the show and don't miss all the exciting new things we have planned. I want to thank all our Club 19.5 members because without your guys' support, this show would not be on the air. Please help us continue growing the show by subscribing to Club 19.5 today. And when I say we really need you, we really need you. Over and out.